Hi friends, it's Jessica. Welcome back to Guru Please. Today's show is a really heartwarming tale about a man who went out in search of an answer to the question of why both of his parents passed away when he was young. This journey led him to discover things about people, things about himself, and eventually to write stories of his own that shed light on the lessons that we can learn from every single person. We speak about the things that are common to every single person on this earth, and I hope that you can learn from his story and discover something about yourself through the archetypes that he describes. Connections with other people and with ourselves are the most important things in our lives, and it's who we become that matters most. Get ready to hear an amazing tale. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Guru Please, the show about pushing the limits of life and stepping up to live with more meaning, more purpose, and more passion. I'm your host, Jessica Sun. I'd like to introduce Daniel Levin. Daniel walks away from an opportunity to run a billion-dollar business, to hitchhike around the world, to find happiness and inner peace. He lived as a monk in a monastery for 10 years, and he's the author of The Mosaic, a fable whose premise is that you are one connection away from an entirely new opportunity. Welcome to the show, Danny. Hey, how are you doing, Jessica? Such a treat to be with you. Yeah, I'm doing well. So pre-interview, we kind of talked about your story and hitchhiking around the world after leaving the opportunity to run a business. And then we also talked about how it started with the, the fact that both of your parents died when you were a child. And you were kind of in this place of seeking the answer to the question of, of why. Why did that happen to me? Let's start there. I want to hear kind of where you are with this question. I, I love that. Uh, do you want to hear where I am now or what happened to, make, to get me along the journey that I was on? Uh, both. Okay. Let's see if we can do that. Mm-hmm. My dad was my idol. I looked up to him. I was a mini-me before mini-me's were even known what they were. We, would, we lived on the East Coast and we would go to the shore and we would walk down the boardwalk in Atlantic City and I would hold his ring finger and people would stop on their bikes and take pictures of us or they would, they would start pointing at us and smile and laugh. And I looked at my dad, I said, Dad, why is everybody smiling and taking pictures and laughing at us? Are we doing something stupid or like, what are we doing? And he said, no, no, Danny, no, they're just not used to seeing someone who is exactly like someone else, but just three feet shorter. My dad was the six foot version of himself and I was the three foot version of him. So he was my life. He was what I looked up to. He was what I emulated to be when I grew up. And my life was shaken to the core when I lost him unexpectedly while I was away at camp at the age of 13. He died on July 4th. And so I made up a story around why that happened. And when we have more time, I can tell you what that story was, but that story isn't that important. But I tried to get a grasp of myself and tried to understand what was going on until two years later on the exact same day at the exact same time, my mom passed away of breast cancer. And so I lost my parents two years apart on the same day when I was 13 and 15. And I wondered what in the world why in the world something like that would happen? Why would people that I love so much 
be taken from me with apparently no reason. And I look at the way a lot of people have grown up because I work with a lot of people now and I hear their stories and they're abused and they're in terrible situations where they're not loved. I was completely loved and accepted. I don't think there was a moment in my life that I felt any, anything other than just completely loved and accepted as a kid. My problem was it didn't last that long. It only lasted till I was 13, but thank God I had that. But I asked the world, I said, why in the world would you do that? And so my search really ended up becoming clearer to me as I wrote the mosaic some 45 years later. Mm. I realized that when my parents passed away, I asked the adults where my parents were. And they told me they're in a place called heaven. And so I set out in search of that place called heaven. I was offered the opportunity to run a billion dollar company to start at the bottom and work my way up to the top. I walked away from that because that wasn't the heaven I was looking for. I was offered the opportunity in college to work and develop organizational psychology. My mentor and my teacher said, I'm going to develop this and I want you to develop it with me and you'll take it over for me and I'll give it to you because I want you to build it with me. I walked away from it because I found psychology didn't have the answers I was looking for. I hitchhiked around the world and felt really content in meeting all these different beautiful people, ordinary people, simple people, beautiful people, and I felt like maybe that was my life. But I got a little lonely and I felt like I want to figure out the search for meaning. I want I to be somewhere where I can study it. And I was hitchhiking en route to India and was stopped midstream in Israel by a holy man who asked me, Danny, why were you born Jewish if you're, if you're, supposed, to be, if you're supposed to be a Hindu? Why wouldn't you have been born Hindu? And I said, I honestly can't answer that question for you right now. He said, do you have the courage to sit with me until you come up with that answer? I said, why not? Sure. So I sat with him for, four, for five years. Mm-hmm. And the day before I was ordained, I said, I think I know the answer to the question now. And I left. And the real answer to the question that I, for him was that I couldn't, I didn't see the dogma that everybody believed in. Like we believed that, only our seminary was right and everybody that didn't follow the way we were doing was doing something wrong. I just didn't believe that. I didn't believe that only a thousand people had the key to the answers to the universe and I thought this can't be. Mm-hmm. And I said to him finally when I left that I believe my purpose in being born Jewish is to spread and make Judaism a wider, more available thing to the world, which ended up not being something that I did. But maybe my life isn't over yet. Who knows what will happen? And I, I left there and went and joined and opened up a business in San Francisco where I had a a bookstore and a cafe and it was successful and we were doing well. But I longed for that feeling of spirituality again and I didn't have it. So I went into a yoga monastery. I joined a yoga community and I I was 10 years as a monk in a monastery. And that was the most beautiful time, one of the most beautiful times in my life because in those moments, I'm assuming, Jessica, one time in your life you've fallen in love. Is that true? Mm-hmm. And you know when you're with your beloved, you just want to spend every moment with your beloved. Right. Somehow my beloved became the infinite, the divine. And when I had the opportunity to sit in the presence of my beloved, all I wanted to do was sit more and more in that presence. So sometimes I would meditate 18 hours a day. I would meditate 14 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And over the last 45 years, I haven't missed a day of meditation. I haven't meditated 18, 18 hours a day anymore. Uh, sometimes I do, but most days I meditate 
just a, a little bit, an hour, or maybe sometimes it's just a few moments. And it, I found that it isn't the amount of time that you spend in your practice. It's the amount of practice you give to your time. I started to see that there isn't a difference between the sitting meditation and the living meditation. And that when I can integrate those and have that, that place, that change of perception be that moment, that started to make sense to me. And I realized in looking back on my life, it was those moments of change of perception where I saw something I'd always seen one way, suddenly differently, that that was my heaven. And that I found my heaven in those moments where my perception for no apparent reason changed. Where I thought one thing and then suddenly I was open to the possibility that something else was equally as real. Mm-hmm. And that became beautiful. The change of the way I saw people. It changed the way I saw situations. It changed the way I saw workplaces. And so people would hire me and bring me in because they were looking for innovation. And they were so used to seeing things always the way they've always seen them. And they were looking for someone who could see the world that they lived in differently and show them different perspectives. And that's what my life is really about. That's the heaven of my life, is the multi-perspective world that we live in, rather than the uniperspective world that I always thought I lived in. So was that kind of the answer to the question, the original question of why did my parents leave? What is your new perspective on that? They didn't leave. They left me physically. But I've had people, I've had psychics read me and say, who's the man that looks just like you that's standing right behind you? I said, I don't know, does he, does he, have, does he have his hair sort of uh, greased back? And they said, yeah. And I said, is he about my height? Yeah. And they said, I said, that's my dad. And I can still hear him. I can feel his presence. I can talk. I talk with him. And what happened for me in the book, The Mosaic, is that when my dad passed away, he entered every character that I met along the street and watched over me through them. And when I realized that we, just because our bodies pass, it doesn't mean we pass. I lost my my wife to the most painful cancer you could ever imagine. She spent two and a half years in blood-curdling, screaming pain for 45 minutes, every 45 minutes, then with a break for 45 minutes, and then back into it, all day, all night. And I always thought of myself as this great white knight that as long as I was around somebody, nothing bad could happen. Well, that surely got blown to smithereens in those moments because I was two inches from my wife, and I couldn't do anything to take a moment of her pain away. But when the moment came when she passed, what I realized is she was not that body because the body became very rigid and tight. I couldn't bend the body after a few after a few moments, maybe hour, an hour. Her body was no longer flexible enough to bend it. But I felt I still felt her presence. So it made me realize again and anew that we're not these bodies that we think we are. Even science is showing us that in quantum physics and metaphysics. We took a look, when we look at ourselves in a microscope and see what we are, what we see, we don't see mass, we see swirls of energy. And so when we realize that we're, for me, the change of perception was the change that I am this body and I've lost this body and my parents are no longer here, to the fact of how could they be anywhere else but here? Mm. They're just not in the body that occupied the space that they had when I knew them in the body. 
and how could I get to know them in the spirit of, of, of energy? And they're here with me all the time. I hear them speaking to me all the time. I talk to them all the time. Mm. Maybe, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe the little van's going to come and carry me away. <laughs> but I, I feel it. And in my work at Hay House, when I worked at Hay House, uh, we worked with a lot of psychics, a lot of them I brought to Hay House. The living reality was I remember being with Sylvia Brown once in a Montel Williams show. I went with her all the time that she went on Montel just to be with her and travel with her and to take care of her and help her throughout whatever she would need. And I remember a man sitting in Montel's office saying, this is a crock of crap. And um, Montel said, great, well, you're the one we want to talk to. He said, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. <laughs> and dur during the break, Sylvia blew his mind. And she said, that pain that you have in your knee and that, and that ache that you have in your neck and the affair that you've been having for all this time, does your wife know anything about those? And he freaked. Mm -hmm. And she said, I purposely set it off air because I want to give you the opportunity when we come on air to tell her. Mm. And he said, I can't, he said, God, in, in under 30 seconds of being in break, this woman completely transformed my view. And how did you know that? And she said, because... Your wife told it to me from the other side. She knew you were having the affair. Mm. And so one of the things that the mosaic has said to me and one of the big things of its storyline is things are nothing is the way it seems. Nothing is the way it seems. When I looked at the homeless man that I was walking towards and wondering why I would see these people, why would I see common ordinary people when I was trying to find the answer to heaven? is that when I spent a few seconds to take time to listen to them tell their story, they were nothing like I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because they changed over the course of time, it was because my perception of them changed. Our perception is not true, it's just our perception. So would you say there's no ultimate truth? I don't know if I'd go that far. I would say there is an ultimate truth, that the ultimate truth is that we're all connected and what we think we see is not what we see. I think that the biggest lie that we can be told is the one we've believed, that we're separate from one another. But we're really not separate from another. The, the air that you're breathing up in San Francisco right now, the air that you're exhaling, I'm inhaling two, minute, two seconds later in San Diego. The air that Gandhi inhaled, I'm still able to inhale right now. The air that Hitler inhaled, I'm still able to inhale right now. So the question is, even in the things that we want, if we would know that we're one breath away, one connection away, one piece away from having an entirely different life, if we want our soul to meet our soulmate, she's one connection away or he's one connection away. If we want that perfect job, it's one connection away. But we've lost ourselves in this belief that we're in this rut that we can't get out. In my book, I call him the road worker. Every road, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter how, how many trees line it, no matter how curvy or how straight, every road develops potholes. Mm -hmm. And the road worker is called to fix those potholes. And when the road worker comes, what he does is he watches the activity of the pothole for a little while. And he sees four different types of people. And I'd like to ask the listener to think, which one of these four are you? First one drives around the pothole, notices it, drives around and goes on with life as if nothing was there. And he continues on with life. Nothing happened. He wasn't affected by the pothole. The second one drives into the pothole and, and ruins the whole front end of his car. 
and hopes no one will notice, but everybody notices. They see the whole front of his car is ruined, but he, he doesn't want to admit it, and he denies it. The third one drives into the pothole, ruins the front end of his car, goes into the shop, gets the car fixed, and goes on pretty much as good as new, but with the experience of knowing there's nothing unsurmountable, that you can fix any, any everything in life is, is reversible. Whatever damages happen, we can reverse them in a moment by just getting them fixed. But the fourth one was who interested him the most. It was the one that stood the pothole and forgot that the road ahead of them is, is beautiful and, and, and long. The road behind them was absolutely exquisite. And they get stuck in the pothole and can't get out. And now they believe their life is in that pothole. All too often we get stuck in this pothole of beliefs and thoughts and feelings and things. We're stuck in a pothole now of thinking that we're separate from each other when we are really all a part of each other. Mm. Wow, that was really a lovely tale about how just so often there's going to be obstacles in our life and sometimes we can just pick ourselves back up and say, okay, I learned something. But, you know, one can spend years, you know, a lifetime in that pothole and say, yes. you know, this is now my life rather than saying, Hey, you know, I was actually, you know, going somewhere else. I was going in a different direction. Well, here's the beauty of the situation. The road worker has to fix the road. Mm -hmm. So eventually he's going to drive by the pothole that you're in and he's going to need you out because he can't fix the road as long as you're inside of it. Mm -hmm. So just when he comes, even if you haven't gotten yourself out, you can call the road worker now. You know him now. I've introduced you to him. He has incredible power. He can be wherever he needs to be. Remember, we're energy. We're not form. If you call him into the pothole that you're in right now, he will lift you up and bring you out hmm. because he needs to fix that pothole. He's not doing it only for you. He's doing it for him. His job is fixing those potholes. And if you don't call on him, eventually he will come to you and lift you out because in the schedule of potholes to be fixed, the one you're in is one of them. Mm -hmm. and he, will, he will have to get you out of it to fix it. But why wait for him to come? Why not call him now? Yeah. Why not get out of it and go on this beautiful road that awaits you? Exactly. You have this quote that's, that goes like, our thoughts become our words, our words become our stories, our stories become our lives. Yes. Yeah, let's talk about that. I love that. that. The mosaic gave me that as a formula for change. Because what happens is, if any one of those parts of your life are not working, change any one of the other parts and your life will have to get back to working. If we don't watch our thoughts, if we wanna know what we're thinking, let's put it this way, if we wanna know what we're thinking, Look at the words we're saying because our thoughts turn into our words. Mm -hmm. And if you want to change your, thought, your thoughts, change the words that you're saying. Because if you don't, what will happen is the words that you're saying will become the stories that you tell. I remember years ago, I, I, I used to tell this story over and over and over again. I told it so many times to myself that I actually believed it was real. I told the story about when my, 
when my dad passed away, my mom took us the next summer to to New York. She took me with her, and we had a great visit in New York. And my mom was thinking that her best friends lived in New York, or some of her best friends lived in New York, and she was thinking maybe we should move to New York. So we, they showed us an area called Soho, which in those days was exactly what it sounds, Soho. There were so many hoes on the street and so many <laughs> needles on the ground that, that, you know, but they were saying if you have patience and you can invest in this area, it will one day be an amazing area, which today is one of the most beautiful areas of New York. It's fabulous. It's, you know, where, where a lot of creativity goes. And so I made up a story that my mom moved us to New York and we had an apartment in Soho for a little bit of time. And I told that story so often because when people see me and they hear my voice, they think I'm from New York. They say, are you from New York? And I got so sick and tired of saying, no, I'm from Philadelphia, that I said, yeah, for a little while I lived in New York. We lived in Soho. When Soho was Soho and it had all the blah, 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 blah. And I was, I, I told it so often that in, I would be doing interviews and people would say it and I would, I would say that story. And finally, I caught myself in the midst of it one time. I said, what the hell am I doing? That, I never, we never lived in Soho. That was, there's no truth to that story at all. Hmm. But how many other stories do I tell myself that I can't so easily disprove? How many other stories do we tell ourselves that we've just said so many times that we actually believe they're real? In my book, The Mosaic, Mo sees this garden that he wants to, that he, he smells it from the neighboring town the night before, and he thinks this is the most exotic smell I've ever smelled. I've got to get to this garden, but it's nighttime. He says, I'll wait until the morning, and I hope the aroma will still be there to guide me to the place, but if I go now in the night, I won't see anything. So he wakes up early in the morning, and the aroma of the garden is still in his nose, and it's from a neighboring town, and he walks to the neighboring town, and, and the, this, the aroma of the garden draws him right to the garden, and he's so intoxicated with how beautiful it is, how great it smells. He can feel it. He can taste it. He can smell it. He can see it, that he has to sit down and close his eyes because his senses are overwhelmed. As he's sitting there meditating on, in this garden and just feeling the beauty of this garden, he feels a presence come two inches from his face. He opens his eyes and he says, gosh, who are you? What are you doing here? And the man two inches from his face says, I know who I am. I'm the gardener. The question is, who are you? What are you doing here? And he said, well, I just woke up in the morning. And I felt this, I smelt this aroma. I had to see this place. And this is the most exquisite garden I've ever seen. And the gardener says to him, why? And he said, I don't know. It's just, what have you done to make this garden so beautiful? And the gardener tells him, well, anybody knows that if you put certain colors together with other colors, the garden looks more beautiful. And Mo says, I know that, but every garden does that. And the gardener thinks a little more, and he says, well, maybe it's because of the texture of the garden. I put small flowers in front of medium-sized flowers and medium-sized flowers in front of tall flowers. And Mo says, come on, everybody does that. I know that's not why, why the garden's beautiful. What have you done? And the gardener stops for a few moments and thinks, and he says, Mo, have you ever gardened? And he said, well, I'm on the road now. I travel, but sometimes people put me up in their homes and I ask if I can do something for them to pay them back for their kindness. And they say, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going out to weed the garden. Why don't you come weed the garden with me? And the gardener says, fantastic. When you go out to weed the garden and you know that clump of weeds that you get in your hand and you pull it and it breaks in your hand and you know you haven't gotten it from the roots, what do you do, Mo? 
And Mo says, well, I'm only a guest in this garden, so I level it off and I make it look like it's nice. And the gardener says, ah, ah, now I understand why you think it's such a beautiful garden. I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have anything else to do. When I come upon a clump of weeds that doesn't come out, I get my shovel and I dig it out. Because until you get the roots of those weeds out of your garden, they will be a cause of, of trouble for you. They will be a cause of concern because anybody who comes to your garden and mentions that they're there will aggravate you and upset you because you know they are and you haven't done anything for them. So I've pulled all those weeds out. And Mo says, I wish someone would come and do that to me. I have this big weed inside me that is really ruining the way I live my life. And the gardener says, well, I can do that for you right now. Why don't we just do that? And he takes a moment and he sits with him and he goes inside Mo to see where that weed is. And he can't find it. He says, I, I don't understand. I can't find it. And Mo says, and he says it to Mo. He said, I don't know what weed you're talking about. I've looked all through your system. There is no weed that's there. And Mo says, I can't understand that because it's always been there. And the gardener leaves and Mo closes his eyes and wonders what's going on. And earlier in the book, a thief came and stole something from him and told him he would never even know what it was until the moment came that he did. Mm. And in closing his eyes, he saw the thief holding that weed in his hand. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who believe they are a certain person but that weed's been taken from their garden and they're not that person anymore. But the thought and the constant overstory of I lived in Soho, I lived in Soho, I lived in Soho became so real to them that they actually believe that's who they are now when that weed has been taken from them a long time ago. Right, right. Yeah, to, to really identify with what has happened and to just relive that over and over again, despite the fact that it is no longer you know, in the present. Yeah, we think that we're someone we're not because that's the beauty of the miracle of change. To me, even the fact that someone's hearing this podcast on the mosaic means the mosaic has reached out to them and is touching them. And who knows what it will do? But I know the power of the mosaic when it, when it engages you. And the fact that you've he heard it means you're engaged now in its process. And to allow its characters to come into your life and, and help you and bring you solace and, sh and, and work with you through, through the, your life. These are common, ordinary, beautiful people that have amazing stories that they can tell and do amazing things in your life. I have, I have all sorts of them, but I want to shut up and let you ask a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about these archetypes of characters that you portray, you know, the gardener, the thief, you know, these kinds of roles that help us know ourselves a bit more. What does it really mean to know yourself? So I, I think if you already follow the train of what we're saying, and I, and I love this conversation, by the way, because even though I'm talking a lot, somehow I'm being guided by your questions to a place where I never even saw before. What I'm seeing is in the thread of our conversation where I talked about the fact that we're all connected and we're all the same and we're all a part of something and we believe that we're separate and it's not. And then this conversation of the archetypes, when, when we 
get to know ourselves. We get to know people on a deeper level. And when we get to know the people that we see on a deeper level, that the trash man is not the trash man, but the trash man is someone who's come. Like my, for instance, I'll just tell you of the trash man. He, in my neighborhood, the trash man comes every Monday morning. Today he came and he picked up our trash. And we put out everything that we don't want into the trash cans and he comes every week and picks them up. Well, as Mo was walking through the town, he had nothing in his pockets and he wasn't carrying anything. The streets in front of him were immaculately clean and a trash truck stopped right beside him and said, do you have any trash for me? And Mo was just about to look at him and say, what are you crazy? I have nothing. You see, I have nothing. My pockets are empty. I have nothing on my back. The streets are clean. Why would you ask me if I have trash until he looked in the trash man's eyes? And he realized the trash man wasn't talking about physical trash. He was talking about emotional and a spiritual and internal trash that had kept him from going where he was going. And Mo said to him, oh my God, I have so much of that. I don't think I can give you something because there's so much of it. And the trash man said, well, I, I don't have anything to do now. I'm a, I can help you. Let me help you empty it out. And he held this trash can for Mo and he said, take everything that ails you. Take all the pain, anything that gives you pain, anything that gives you suffering, anything that you feel is blocking you and put it in this trash can. Just get it out of your system and put it into this trash can. Take everything that is a burden to you, put it in this trash can. Take everything you no longer want, put it into this trash can. And the trash man looks at him and says, the compassionate idea of emptying your trash is I want you to see yourself for one moment when you no longer have to carry all those things that burden you and all those things that give you pain and suffering. When they're just sitting in the trash can, I want you to see who you are without those things. Who are you, Mo? And Mo says, I've never seen this person before. I like this person. Will you please take all that and put it into the trash truck? I don't want any of that back. And the trash man says, be careful, you, you can reclaim it, you can regrow it, you can find it again anywhere you look, or you can choose to not have it ever again. What I loved about the mosaic and the archetypes that were created through, through the book was that you could have that same story told about every single person that you meet Every single person has a place in this world. Every single person has a, has a story that they can tell you that can actually change the entire way you see the world. Mm -hmm. Be them a gardener or a doctor or, or, or a street worker or a, a trash man or a waitress or a juice man, whoever they are, they've got tons of stories that they can tell. If you would only see the importance of every single being that comes in to cross your way. And when you see that, you don't need the stories of the archetypes of my mosaic. You can create your own mosaic of the stories of people who you meet in your world. How about the elevator boy who lifts, who takes you up to work? How about the person behind the, behind the counter that makes your coffee? How about the person in the, in the grocery store that rings up your, rings up your goods? What can each one of them tell you? What is the story they would tell you if you took the time to just listen? Mm. Life takes on a whole new meaning that way. And in knowing them, you get to know yourself. Is that what you're talking about when you speak of wanting to create a revolution of listening? Yes. 
Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about because look how much I talk right now, okay? And I said when, when this voice came to me and said, I want you to create a revolution of listening, I said, you must be kidding. I mean, look how much I'm talking. You want someone who can listen more than I do. And they said, no, no, Danny, you're doing just fine because what you do in your conversation is you occupy the minds of people so that their minds listen to what you're saying. But the real work of what you're doing, your place of listening is not with your ears to the words that they're saying, but with your heart and your soul to what their heart and soul needs. Mm. And so once the mind is occupied and you can get them not to interfere with the transmission of energy, and we'll only know if that's possible when people respond to this and say, boy, I felt something great from that or I didn't feel anything at all. I don't know what they'll say, but the possibility exists when we shut the mind out, when we, when we isolate the mind to the conversation of this conversation, that it frees our soul and our heart to connect with each other. And in that connection is where real transformation happens. Mm. So you're really opening up the space for somebody to listen and through their act of listening, their life can change, you know, they can hear a story that maybe knocks out one of their stories about themselves or, or somehow the words create a new idea in their minds. And from there, they're speaking different kinds of words. Yeah, all I can tell you is I'm doing this, I'm doing this experiment. Mm -hmm. And I had this idea because I was supposed after I finished the mosaic, it told me I want you to go out on the road and do what Mo did. I want you to find people that nobody speaks to and speak to them. I want you to find people no one listens to and listens to them and listens to them. And I thought that was going to be the downtrodden until I was sitting in my chair uh, thinking something through and my wife said something to me. And I said, Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And she looked at me, she said, Danny, look at me a minute. And I, lo I looked up and I looked at her. She said, you didn't hear a word I said, did you? And I said, I'm sorry, I really didn't. <laughs> and she said, so here's the great listener who spends his life listening to other people and you don't even listen to your wife saying something to you. I said, I am so sorry. But that's true. So it isn't just the downtrodden that don't get listened to. It's the kids in school who feel like their voice isn't heard because they're all trying to be fit into a square. They're round holes that are being trying to fit into a square peg. The people in, in, the, in businesses that feel that they can't say what they want to say to their, to their managers because they won't, they'll be fired. Mm -hmm. It's the CEOs of those same companies that say, if I told people who I was, they, no one would respect me and listen to me, so I have to put on a persona. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is we listen so little and we talk so much. So my mission is really to invite the possibility of what would happen in a person's life if they would listen a little more than they speak. Mm -hmm. And so I hold this, these rooms because I can't go out now because of COVID. I hold this room where we have, it was called 50 Conversations with 50 Strangers. And people signed up so quickly that I grew to 50 people in like a week and a half. And I had those conversations. So now I just called Conversations with Strangers. And I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of people. And it's so beautiful to watch what happens in that room because I only have one objective in that room. My objective is anybody who comes in that room feels loved and accepted, feels listened to and heard, feels acknowledged and validated. 
and the amazing thing that happens when people feel those things is suddenly everything they're not falls away because they no longer need to protect themselves and everything they are emerges and I watch transformations happen over and over again, shifts of energy where I say to people, did you just feel what happened? They say, yeah, my God, I've never felt that before. Mm. Because people feel so beautifully good when they're just loved and accepted for who they are. Yeah, yeah. Why, why can't we do this for ourselves? Why is it so difficult? Yeah, that's the that's the golden question. And we, the truth of the matter is, Jessica, we can and we do. We just have to get a little bit. We just have to continue to grow in it and do more. Because I notice now, like here I here I am. I'm, I, I put notes in and I said, you know, contact me if you want to have a conversation with a stranger. And, I'm, and my schedule is like inundated. I'm speaking from 7 in the morning till 7 at night. But I could easily make a, a lunch break and a dinner break in my schedule. I just I just didn't because I didn't think they would take every hour on the hour that I had. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, but but when you realize then what's happening, then at a certain point you just say, "Hold it! I want to be able to sit in in." For me, the way I do that is in the process of my meditation, and I just sit every day, no matter what happens. And I sit and I just, I just ask my, my beautiful beloved what she wants me to do today, what's important for her that happens for me today. And then I just sit and listen. Sometimes I hear clearly. Sometimes I don't hear so clearly. Mm. Do we have time for one more story? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So the mosaic is what I've talked about. There are two other characters in my life that have been the most valuable people in my life. One has been my daughter, and one has been a homeless man that I met on the streets of San Diego. You choose which story you want to hear. Hmm. I want to hear about your daughter. Okay. I've had the opportunity to sit with the richest people in the world at their dinner tables, to meet their parents, to play on the floor with their kids, to have them give me counsel occasionally, and, and for them to even ask my counsel upon occasion. And it's felt so good to be in their presence and to get to know them. I've also had the opportunity to sit on street corners with some of the poorest of the poor. And I've had the opportunity to get to know their family and their friends, to sit with them on their cardboard boxes and share a meal with them. The meals were very different than the ones I had with the richest people, but they were, they were as fulfilling as, the, as any meal I've ever had. And what I saw in all of those cases is that every single person wants to be loved and accepted, listened to and heard, acknowledged and validated, and that I could do that. So with my own daughter, I thought, I would like to do that for her because you see my daughter's developmentally delayed and she can't speak to us. She can't have a conversation like we're having. When she speaks, most people don't understand her. And when they don't understand her, they don't think she's able to think because if someone doesn't speak they don't think someone can they, they don't think someone thinks but I knew she was thinking but I just didn't know how to get through to her mm. and often I would be the only one that would understand what she was saying but oftentimes even I couldn't understand what she was saying so I watched what would happen is when she would speak and she didn't get heard she would yell and she would yell at the top of her lungs sometimes to say it but it wasn't because I was getting old and my hearing was going which is also true 
that I couldn't understand her. It was because that I just couldn't understand the clarity of her mind and, I, and the clarity of her words. And so I said to her, I can't, I, I'm sorry, Elisa, I can't understand you. And when she yelled it and she couldn't get heard, she would tantrum. And all too often, I wish that it happened just as quickly as I'm saying, that she would speak, yell, tantrum, and it would all happen in the same time. But often there was hours or sometimes even days between those things, events that happened. So it seemed like some of the things she was doing were very random until I looked back on it years later, and I saw that it was all a progression. Mm. And she would tantrum, so it wouldn't matter if we were in, the, in a restaurant just sitting down at the table or in a friend's house or if we were in a business meeting with somebody or if we were at home or if we were walking on the beach or driving in a car, she would go berserk and I couldn't understand what was going on. And then if that didn't work, she would attack me. She would either try and rip my shirt or, or, or uh, bite me. Mm. And this went on for 15 years, Jessica, sometimes as mm. many as five times a day. Thank God, not every day. And finally, in the midst of her rage one time, after 15 years of going through it and trying to understand it, I just looked at her and she was racing towards me to try and bite me. I said, Elisa, this can't go on. You know I love you and I adore you. You're the closest person I have in my life. You know how badly I want to understand you. I just can't understand what you're saying to me. Can you please try and tell me what you're saying without words? She stopped dead in her tracks and she smiled at me and she said, I am daddy. Perfect English. And I said to her, what the heck are you talking about? What do you mean you are daddy? And why did it take this long for us to figure this out? How are you doing that? And she took her finger and pointed to the side of her head. And what I realized in her pointing to the side of her head, that she, had that she was telepathically communicating to me what she was trying to say because she knew I couldn't understand her words. Mm. And even sometimes when she said her words and I understood it, it was because she was telepathically saying it and I understood her in my head. So I said to her, you little son of a gun, have you been telepath? Have you been putting thoughts into my head? And she started to laugh this uncontrollable laugh of all the suffering, all the pain that had been on in her for all this time let go because she finally got hurt and we left we left contagiously for what must have been 10 minutes it felt like 10 years do you know from that moment on she's never raised her voice and yelled she's never tantrumed and she's never attacked because now she feels heard that would have been more than enough for me if it, if that was the end of the story but that wasn't the end of the story i got greedy and I said, I wonder if she's giving me a secret that the rest of the world could benefit from. And I looked at every company that I worked with or every family that I worked with. I looked at some government officials that I was working with and some military people that I was working with. And I applied the same principle to them. And I saw they did exactly the same thing and the people they were working with did exactly the same thing. When they spoke and they didn't get heard, they yelled. When they yelled and they didn't get heard, they created a scene, they created havoc, they tried to create a disruption. And when the disruption didn't work, they tried to attack. They either blew up a building, they shot people in a town square, they, they dropped bombs on, on people. They did whatever they did to, to, to make it happen. Mm. And I said to them, I wonder if the intelligence of a developmentally delayed kid could solve some of your problems. What would happen if you just sat and listened to what your, these people were saying rather than fought them. 
Do you know how often those situations change? They stopped. As soon as people felt listened to, they no longer, they no longer yelled and tantrumed and attacked. It was an immediate resolution of a problem that could have gone to war. Yeah. All from a developmentally delayed kid. Right. So, so who has knowledge and who doesn't? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we can be inspired and find the wisdom in these seemingly irrelevant things or seemingly chance occurrences, but really the lessons can be applied in so many different ways. Yeah, we think that we know what's going on. We have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. And when we open ourselves up to the ordinary people that we see every day in our life, instead of trying to be these superheroes where we wear our costumes and our masks and feel we're going to save the world with our superpowers that are so popular now, I'm really against all that. I, I believe... What that does is it causes us to get an unsustainable level of self-hatred that we come to have because we believe we should be more than we are. We believe we should always be able to be this and we can't. And so we loathe ourselves because we can't be who we want to be. Mm. Instead of just being beautifully ordinary, when you see a sunrise in the morning, we know exactly the time the sun is going to rise. The most ordinary thing that could ever happen. It's the most beautiful thing you could ever see. Yeah. And so why do we, why do we oppose the ordinary and, and think that the extraordinary is so fabulous? Yeah, because it's it is those simple moments and these things we do take for granted that truly we could never even explain, you know? Yes. Yeah. When extraordinary things happen, the mosaic has shown me Extraordinary things happen because extraordinaries come together. And when extraordinaries come together, we create extraordinary things. Mm. We were never meant to be extraordinary on our own. I ask people on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you want to be ordinary? With 1 being what you don't want to be and 10 being what you love being. And they say, oh God, 1, we hate being ordinary. Mm -hmm. And I say, how much do you want to be extraordinary? And they say 10, 12, 15. So I said to him, I'm sorry, you know, maybe it's just something in the English language. But if you don't want to be ordinary, why do you want to be extra of something you don't want to be? We were never supposed to be extraordinary on our own. The whole thing was we were supposed to get together and come together. The whole reason my parents passed away on 4th of July was to tell me that independence meant death. That it's only when we come together with each other that we have real life. Wow. Yeah, I feel like what you just said, I think it can stand on its own. I don't think that needs further explanation. Well, I want to thank you so much for having me here. And for your, you have such a beautifully gentle heart. And I want to thank you for the beautiful gentleness of your heart allowing me to enter into it for a few moments and share myself with you and the people that listen to your show. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate you sharing what you've gone through and how you've not simply overcome, but found yourself in your story and 
you know, are writing it in such a way that is really beautiful. And just to listen to it feels good. I mean, that, that says something about what you've done. Thank you. That's so kind of you. And, and I would love it if people would get a copy of the mosaic. It's available on Amazon. I think it will, it will impact you in a way that the beauty of its words are one thing, but take time with the space between its words and allow that space to also speak to you. We're starting now a book club, which will, which will mm. uh, study the, the mosaic together, which is going to be fabulous. It's, it should come out around the 1st of October. So if anybody wants more information, please contact me and I can give you the links to that. Amazing. Yeah. And I'll provide links in the show notes as well. Jessica, thank you again. Thank you. I mean, this has warmed my heart. Me too.